past two minutes. Don't worry about it. You'll hear the rest. So let's pray together. God, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that it's, it's more than valuable. It's more than historical. Um, God, it is worth us looking to so that we can know you uh, and then make you known. God, I pray today as we look at it that we don't add anything or take anything away. But God, we speak from the intent of you and, and what you desire for us to hear. Um, God, thank you for the life of Paul and the way that he sacrificially gave everything he had uh, to make sure that people had repeated opportunities to hear and respond to your good news. Um, and God, thank you that it's echoed uh, for 2,000 plus years. Um, and Father, we pray that it, there's no end in sight. Um, so today as we look at it, God, we pray that you would speak. Thank you for loving us. Thank you so much for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in 27 through 30. Um, if you haven't been with us uh, the past two weeks, we, we started a couple weeks ago, and we spent some time in, in the book of Acts, and we spent some time in, in Philippians just to kind of give us a, a good footing on what we're looking at. But again, the letter to the church at Philippi, which Paul somewhat planted to a degree, uh, 10 to 12 years previous to the letter being written. And, and now we kind of have Paul writing a letter as an update, but also as kind of a, a patrilineal coaching kind of a thing or a, a fatherly-like discipleship letter to a church that he loves and appreciates so very much. And we've just kind of, we've kind of came off last week, we looked at, he kind of gave a physical update as to where he was. He was back in prison, no surprise. And, but he talked about where he was physically, but he talked about where he was spiritually too. And we kind of talked about that, not so much between a rock and a hard place as, as it was between a Philly cheesesteak and a bacon double cheeseburger with avocado. Like he was between two really good places. And he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain, which I shall choose. I, I don't know. Um, but, and then in the end, we see that he said, but it's far better that I stay, even though it would be far better for me if I go and be with Christ. For you, it's better if I stay, so I'll stay. And then on the tail end of that, we have four very chunky verses today, um, and they are. They're, they're thick, and, and they have a lot of implications, and, and I'll go ahead and tell you. Um, I think if we look at this well, given life circumstance and where I know people are by conversation and where I know people are just by life percentages, it, it'll be a hard passage to chew on today, like just the reality. Um, there are some truths in Scripture that are life-giving and assertive in nature, uh, and this is not a discouraging, discouraging passage in the, in, the, in the slightest, but it is a weighty passage, and there will be life circumstances that this will speak to today that will just make it hard for you. So this is my challenge to you. Um, when it gets to that part, and it's thick and it's difficult based on where you are, just, just hold on, okay? Don't, don't cash out. Don't shut down. Just, just listen, because the truth is here for a reason. Um, the things that are here, uh, you're, they're not unique to you. The church has experienced them. They will continue to experience them, um, and it, it's written for a reason. So just, just hold on with me, if you would, today. So we're going to read through these four verses, and then we'll kind, of, we'll kind of tear them apart just a bit. So verse 27. Paul, to the people of Philippi, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so at the end of last week, he kind of put this idea out there that, yes, I could leave this place, die, because we told, like I said, he was in a prison-type situation where they were like, hey, you know, uh, you did good today, uh, get some rest for tomorrow, you may die, princess bride kind of a situation. Um, and, and he said, you know, that's facing me, but also facing me is the chance for me to stay and continue to invest in you, people that I love, people that I, I have great hope for, a partnership that exists that I'm very grateful for. Um, and so if I... I really want to go home and be with Christ because that's far better than everything, but to stick around means that I get to invest in you, that I get to pour into you, that I get to continue to father you to a degree as a spiritual father. And so it's far better for you, not as good for me, but it's far better for you. So that's what I'm going to choose. And so then the rest of the letter is kind of that. He's given his updates. He'll give a few more updates about some people that are important to them. But for the rest of the letter, for the most part, He's going to be imparting like truth that they need to live where they are as they are as it comes. And so this is kind of how he starts doing that. And the very first thing that he says in verse 27 is he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. And so in Greek, it's basically like those first five, six words. In Greek, it's basically one word. And it's the word that we get politics from, political, all of these ideas. But basically, it was an idea of citizenship. And so he's basically saying this. He's like, behave as citizens worthy of. Now, he puts worthy of the gospel of Christ, but this idea would have been very prevalent for them uh, being the people of Philippi. They were a colony of Rome. Uh, so technically, they were Roman citizens, but they weren't living in Rome proper. But Philippi was unique. Philippi was a very special colony, like uh, Macedonia was a very special colony, and Philippi was the chief city of that. Like, they, they weren't normal, uh, because most of colonies of Rome, they were treated as colonies, and so they paid higher taxes. Uh, they didn't have quite all the rights of Rome, um, and they were missing those things. But Philippi, on the other hand, they were special. They were unique. They were different, um, because they were treated, even though they were a colony, they were treated just like they were living inside the boundaries, the true boundaries of Rome. And so as a result, they paid lower taxes. Um, they probably had more Roman civic pride than any of the other colonies, and, and they were unique. And what they would have understood, too, is they would have understood the rights afforded to Roman citizens more than any other colony for the most part. So they would have known to be a Roman citizen, it meant that you lived out your life in a very specific, unique way, and that doing just enough to get by was not it. Because they knew to be Roman was a big deal. Uh, Rome had this amazing talent of conquering people and then telling them, it's good for you that we conquered you. You know, it's, it's really good because now you're not blah, 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 blah. You're Romans. And that's really good. And some people bought it, some people didn't. But either way, the people of Philippi, they were endorsed. Okay, they kind of had like the Roman stamp of approval, and they were, they were good. And so when Paul would have used this one word that we get our word of politics from, which basically meant behave as good citizens, when he used that, they would have instantly gone to this idea, okay, in order to be Roman, I need to be better than just good enough. 
Like, I need to live a very certain, unique, set-apart way as Roman citizens to. But Paul wasn't speaking about Roman citizenry. He was speaking about a, a, a different citizenship, a different kingdom. And so he, he quantified it this way. He said, only let your manner of life live like a worthy citizen, not of Rome, but of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he let them know in this moment, with this one statement that we don't see all these words, they would. He let them know that their citizenship, even though it's Roman on their passport, they didn't quite have passports yet, but they did have papers. Even though it says Rome, their citizenship was different now as a result of Jesus, as a result of the gospel, literally the good news of Jesus. And as a result of their citizenship changing, their kingdom changing, their affiliation changing, the way their life looks should be different. It should be different. Now, I think it would be very easy to assume and go on and go through the motions of saying, okay, I've come to Christ now, but it doesn't necessarily mean that anything should change. That idea is put to death right here in one small verse. Like, it, it needs to die for us. Like, if we have um, left our sin, chosen Jesus instead, told ourselves and told God that this part of my life is now dead, I am alive in this part of my life, which is now Jesus, uh, my life should look different. Like, it can't be the same anymore because my citizenship has changed. Like, I'm no longer a citizen of the world. Now I'm a citizen of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And as a result, my life, it does. It has to be different. We have to behave as kingdom people. Now, we would love it if our life didn't change, but what good would that be? Why would we come to Christ if our life would stay exactly as it was? So he says to them, he's like, look, uh, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. For the rest of this text, and even going into chapter 2 a little bit, this is like an umbrella statement um, that, that kind of gives a broad idea of what's about to come, and everything else is going to kind of fill in the gaps. And so he starts with, your citizenship has changed. You're in a new kingdom. Your life needs to look different. It needs to look different. And he, and he even tells them, like, he's like, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, it doesn't really matter. I, I just want to know. I want to know that you understand your life now as a result of what kingdom you live in is different. And over the past year, I feel like it's been a prevalent idea for us. Like, we need to begin and continue to live like kingdom people. Like kingdom people. Like the way that we love, um, the way that we endure, the way that we give, the way that we serve, the way that we respond to good and bad, it must look different because we're not in the same kingdom that we were born into. We have been reborn into a different kingdom, different family, all of those things. And as a result, life should look different. So he's telling them, same idea. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, and here's this first thing, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for faith in the gospel. This was a, almost like a military idea. Paul was um, frequently going to, to military metaphors, sports metaphors, but he's like, I, I need to make sure uh, if your life is different, if you're living a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ, the good news, the first kind of uh, detail of that or the first indicator of that is that you have a united front, a united front. Like in military ideas, that means that the line does not break. Hold the line. Shoulder to shoulder, no matter what comes, we keep pushing forward. I think it was MacArthur said, you know, um, I better never hear that you're holding your ground. Because holding your ground means you're not moving forward. And so and anyway, that's, that's stretching it a little bit. But Paul's like, look, uh, if, if your life is different, if you're kingdom people, um, one of the first indicators is that you're shoulder to shoulder. You're heading in the same direction. Same direction. It may not mean that you're at the same place from a maturity standpoint, 
but it means that, that our direction is the same. Um, and I'm sure, like show of hands, if you've grown up in the church, if you grew up like attending church, going to church, I'm sure at least, at least once you've seen a stratified church family because they all wanted something different. And then as a result, you saw what happened to that church. It pre- either did not grow, it did not mature, or it died. Or it died. The kingdom can't look like that. Like if we all come in with our separate agendas, all wanting our same or our different things, not on the same page, this will not work. It just won't. And to be honest, like we're not talking about kingdom of origins, we're talking about kingdom of God, big K kingdom kind of an idea. Like if we all want different things and it's not Jesus, then we're kind of, man, we're kicking sand. It's not going to do any good. So he said, look, be different because you are different. You live in a different place, different kingdom and strive side by side together. Make sure you're heading in the same direction. We'll fill that in in just a minute. And then he gives another kind of a qualifier for being kingdom people, living as different citizens. Verse 28, and he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, in Philippians' days, they had several opponents. They had Jewish believers who would kind of filter in to Philippi. And so if you had people that were claiming Jesus... And they were claiming Jesus, and they were doing some semi-Jewish things as a result of claiming Jesus. You would have some Jewish people who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah in the 60s is when he wrote this. They would come in, and they'd be like, um, yeah, I kind of I want you to die. You know, you're, you're claiming Jesus. He was Jesus of Nazareth. He was one of ours. We don't think he was the Son of God, but you're not Jewish. Uh, you're Roman um, by way of Philippi, and so you don't have the right to do that. So, you know what, if I find you on the street... And it's just me and you, or me and my two friends, and just you. We're, we're just going to beat you. How about that? One opponent. Another opponent, even though they were Roman, and they had the stamp of Rome, and they were Philippians, and they had great pride, the fact is they were doing something now by worshiping Jesus that was illegal to Roman standards. Because you could have no other god other than Caesar. Like, that was illegal. Like, you even read it on the coins. Like their coins uh, declared who their allegiance needed to be to. And so as a result of them claiming Jesus, it was, they were, you know, they were felons. They were doing the illegal. So if Rome really found out about it and decided to crack down on them, they could. They could throw them in jail for having a gother, another god other than Caesar. And so they had like real physical opponents, not like these, you know, these ide- ideological compo- you know, opponents, people that don't like your posts on Facebook or Instagram or what's the new one? I don't even know what the new one is. It's been on the news all week. What is it? Trent, threads? Yeah, threads? Yeah, no idea. Um, I'm 43, and I don't care anymore. And so that's, that's just the way that it is. Um, so I'm not talking about those kind of opponents. No, I'm talking about like real opponents. They either want you in jail, beat down, or dead. Like those are real opponents. And Paul, Paul's speaking from prison. Like Paul's not speaking from a, a theoretical, hypothetical place. No, he's, he's in prison because he spoke about Jesus in which they're saying, you may live today, but very well tomorrow you may die. And he's telling them, look, if you are kingdom people, if your citizenship has changed and your life looks different, you need to stand side by side going after the same thing. But also when you have opponents that want you dead in prison or beat down, you don't need to be afraid of them. That's what kingdom people do. And already, like, it, it was pretty easy. Yeah, we can be unified. But then this, like, well, if people want to kill me. I think, I think my natural response is to be a little afraid. He's like, don't, don't be afraid. And then he even gives reasons why. 
He says, do not be frightened by anything in your opponents which are real to you. He says two things. Number one, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that of God. He says this lack of fear because, here's the subtext, because you are trusting in God Almighty, this lack of fear, number one, will point to them and their life and realize they have no hope without Jesus. But those who are standing beside you, shoulder to shoulder, remember United Front, they do have hope. He said, your lack of fear, because of your trust in Jesus, will either show people they don't have Jesus or they do. One or the other. So even, even like our ability to endure, withstand, in the face of opponents, man, there, there's the gospel right there. We get to fill it in with words, but man, it points people to it. So he continues on. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, your opponents, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 29. This is when it starts to get a little bit heavy. He said, and this is a compound statement. So it's, um, he says, for it has been granted to you two things, that you, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. If we were diagramming sentences, um, the, what we would do, number one, granted is like the verb form of grace. Okay, and, and I'm still not sure, exactly sure, while modern English translations don't say graced, uh, because, it's, it's, you know, we probably don't have a full grasp of what that is, but same root word is grace, charis. And this is charismai, which is to be graced or to be given based upon grace. He says, for it's been granted to you two things. Two things. Number one, to believe. And we know that we believe unto, fill in the blank, salvation, okay, for it has been granted to you, number one, to believe. Number two, same grace. Same grace, same modifier at the end of this compound sentence. For it has been granted to you, A, to believe, unto salvation, B, to suffer. And then the modifier at the end of that statement is for the sake of Christ. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. For grace to salvation, I'm good with that. I'm on board. I'm like, yeah, I need that grace. But the same grace that extends to me salvation is the same grace that extends to me suffering for the sake of Christ. Here's the reality. Some days, life is hard. Some days it's hard. Some days it's painful. Some days you get kicked more than you can take. And if we've chosen to follow Christ, we have to accept that some of those days are a result of grace. And that's mind-boggling. How can that even work? I love that he adds for the sake of Christ early instead of at the end of the sentence because if we were like, for it has been granted to you to believe and to suffer for the sake of Christ, we'd probably just skip over that for the sake of Christ idea because we would have just read to suffer and we'd have been like, oh, I don't want that. But he puts it early in the statement. You know, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe but also suffer. We have to understand, like, the way that we view things most of the time revolving around ourselves is broken and wrong. It's broken and wrong. Like it's not the way that God made things. It's not His order. Like it's not. In, in the early 1500s, there was this 
guy named Copernicus, Nicholas Copernicus. He was from Poland, educated in Italy. And Nicholas Copernicus did something like that ended up him being ostracized from the church, the Catholic church. He, uh, he was ostracized from the, the mathematical community, the scientific community, the astrology community. He proposed that everything didn't revolve around the earth, a geocentric solar system. He proposed that everything actually revolved around the sun, a heliocentric universe. And as a result, mathematicians were like, you're out of your mind. We would like for you to drown, you know, or be thrown in prison. You know, and mathematicians were mean, too. They'd like cut your tongue out if you, if you said two plus two equals something other than four. Um, even if, anyway, we're, we won't get into that. But he proposed, early 1500s, that we actually revolve around the sun and everything doesn't revolve around us. He wrote a book and they, they tried to discredit it. Crazy, crazy things. Jesus did the exact same thing for us. Because up until Christ, in our kingdom, my kingdom, your kingdom, we're at the center. Everything revolves around us. Your parents feed you because you're hungry. They clean you because you're dirty. Uh, your boss rewards you because you did awesome. Everything revolves around us. We have a geocentric or an egocentric universe, right? And so in an egocentric universe, if everything revolves around me, we read this statement, for it has been granted to you, we leave out for the sake of Christ, for it has been granted to you that you not only believe, but you suffer. We read that in an egocentric universe, and we're like, no, nah, can't happen. Doesn't make sense. But what Jesus did was very similar to Copernicus, foreshadowing. Uh, he took us out of the center, and he moved us into orbit around himself. And now, now we have a theocentric universe or a Christ-centric or a Christocentric universe in which we understand if we're thinking well, if we've been renovated in spirit, changed in mind, like Romans 12 says that we need to be, uh, we understand that we're not at the center anymore. Life doesn't revolve around me. Not my whims, not my desires, not my dreams, not my hopes. And you're like, man, you are crushing me right now. No, just hold on. Revolves around Jesus. And so if we can change our orbit or understand that our orbit has been changed, whether we think that we can change it or not, it's already been changed. If we can think along those lines, then there's a possibility that we can see suffering as a part of grace for the sake of Christ. But until we do, until we do, suffering is always going to be cruelty. And it's always going to be a bad day. And it's always going to be things that we need to rebel against, things that we need to fight against, things that we need to complain about, things that we need to post about, things that we need to lament about. And lament is not necessarily bad, but just we'll never get it. We have to understand we're in orbit. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake and then he points to himself. He says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. He's like, so just, just as a point of reminder, just so you know that I'm not speaking hypothetically, I, I, I am in prison again. You saw me beat to a bloody pulp the first time that we met and then tossed in jail. You saw that. Yeah, I'm there again. So just reminding you, I'm speaking from experience, not from just like this, you know, ethereal place. Like it, it's real. Suffering's real. 
But remember what we talked about last week. Like, he didn't go into the, the terrible nature of his, of his current circumstance of being in prison. No, no, no. He said, hey, I want you to actually know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial garden to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Fill in the blank that my suffering is for Christ. He has been graced to suffer. And as a result, Jesus' renown has grown. Christocentric versus egocentric. An egocentric Paul would have been like, man, like I said last week, it's terrible in here. you got to get me out. Because only if you get me out can I talk about Jesus again. No, no, no. He understood that his circumstance was an opportunity, not a punishment. That it was the same grace that redeemed him, that that same grace put him in prison. Makes no sense. Like, honestly, it doesn't. Like, it, it makes no sense. This, this God who's completely good, who's com- completely redeeming, could grace me to suffer? How does that work? Well, we'll, we'll get to that. But before we get to that, I want to I point out a couple things about this passage before we, we kind of get to the, the elephant in the room. The first thing that I think that we do is, is, is we have to understand, just like they did in the opening verse, verse 27, is that we can't strive to live a life that's just good enough. Like, because I, I know, like, we don't like to be told what to do, and we don't like to be told what not to do. But the fact is, Jesus came to do something really, really big, really, really revolutionary. And as a result of that, the gospel being proclaimed, accepted, lived out by grace through faith, like, our lives should not be the same. They shouldn't be the same. Like, the way that I used to be before Jesus should not be the way that I am now. If so, then I've made his death on the cross pointless. And useless. He didn't come to make me a better version of me myself. He came to make me new. And new, believe it or not, newsflash, new looks different than old. New looks different than old. New thinks different than old. New loves different than old. New responds different than old. New speaks different than old. New does things that are different than old. Like we're just, we're not who we were. If we have been redeemed. We're not the same. And as a result, we cannot strive to live a life that's just good enough to get by. And you know the way that that looks for most people in the church in the United States now? Go to church and go home. Number one, I don't even like saying go to church. Like, I don't know if you've ever picked up on that. I don't like saying it because I think, number one, it's erroneous and false. We don't go to church, even though we've made edifices churches. We're, I mean, that's not what a church is. A church is people. We gather with the church, and we worship as the church, and we proclaim as the church, and we live out life as the church, but we don't ever, ever, ever go to church. Now, if you say that, I'm not telling you that you're wrong because even my kids say it, and I just got to deal with it. I got my problems. You got yours. We all got them. But in as much as I'm capable, I will never say go to church. Because we don't. I don't even know how I got on that. But either way, like most people in this country, to be a Christian means they go to a place they call church. They sit in probably an uncomfortable chair for an hour to an hour and a half. They get up, they leave, they eat, they tip poorly, and they lay down at night and don't think anything different. We can't do that. We can't be that. That is not, doggone, that is not who we are. 
And not because we wear Origins t-shirts. I don't care. I don't care about that. Because Christ has redeemed us and made us new. We can't be that anymore. The world declares they need something other than that. And we can't be that anymore. They will never see Jesus if we warm a pew. They will never see Jesus if we are unchanged people. And they must see Jesus in order to believe, in order to be redeemed, in order to be saved. They must see Jesus. And we get to show them. Them includes our children, them includes our spouses, them includes our coworkers, our neighbors, all them. We can't be just good enough. And as a matter of fact, it's not just about them. It's about Jesus. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. If we tell Jesus, yes, you've redeemed me, but I'm not going to change a thing. That's rather insulting to a very high price paid for a very worthless individual. Me. If my language doesn't change, if the things I watch don't change. And I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about response to the gospel that has made us new. If these things don't change, has Christ changed me? Has Christ changed you? New looks different than old. We have to be kingdom people living in response to grace. So that means a couple things for us. This is what we do with this. Like understanding that we we strive to be more than just good enough. Number one, we need to actually learn who we are. We need to learn our new identity. And some of that's going to be passive on our part. Passive regeneration, passive sanctification, what the Spirit does in us. But there's an active role that we must play too. And that means uh, God's told us who we are in Scripture, what His people look like, how His people should live, what His people should think, how His people should love, how His people should avoid sin, how His people should conquer death, all of those things only through Him. And that means that we actually need to strive to figure out what that is. And that means that we become students of Scripture. He didn't give us this so it would be a great paperweight and, and keep our coffee table from floating away. He gave us this so that we could allow ourselves to be molded, shaped, and remade in the image of Jesus because we get to see him here. So that means if we want to live like kingdom people, we need to know what kingdom people look like, and we need to go to the source and actually spend time there. And and be honest, here we go. I'm going to kick you. That means it happens more than just Sundays because I can't teach you everything. I can't. That means you need to figure it out. And you don't have to do it alone. we got peoples. And if you don't know how, man, we, got, we can help. Like on the back, there's three left. There's soap journals back there. Easy way. I do it. That's the way that I spend time in Scripture when I'm not studying. And there's, there's three soap journals back there. They're free. You can take them. It'll give you a method. It'll give you a plan. All you do is open it, open your Bible, pray before you start, and allow God to speak. There was a country song that said, imagine that. I'm not going to sing it. But there it was. Like, imagine that. Pick it up. And then if you still struggle, you're like, ah, I, don't, I don't read very well. Well, there's other ways. But if we're going to live like kingdom people, we need to know what kingdom people look like. And so we, we spend time in Scripture. And then maybe after that, you actually find somebody that's more mature than you. And you say, hey, you've been walking with Jesus for a while. You know more than I do. Can you, can you teach me what that looks like? It's called discipleship. Person to person, face to face, relationship to relationship. We have discipleship groups going right now. If you want to get in on one, we'll be glad to introduce you. Community groups, they start back in the fall or late summer. I don't know. School messes up when I think seasons happen. 
Um, but they'll start back, you get in there. And that's, that's another form of discipleship for us too. Relationship to relationship, people to people, word to word, heart to heart, life to life. All of those metaphors that fall short. Figure that out. And then the, that last part, maybe you just need to spend time and say, hey God, teach me who I am. If I want to live like kingdom people, if I want to live like a kingdom person, if I want to know who I am, I need you to tell me who I am. And then we listen to God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. God's word, God's spirit, God's people. If we're going to live like kingdom people, we need to learn who we are. The second point of what do we do with this is, uh, I think we have to insist on unity. Insist on unity. Right after he talked about this, this politio idea or live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, one of the first things he said, he's like, so that whether I come and see you or I don't, I want to know that you're standing side by side, striving for the same thing, united front. We have to insist on unity. And that's a fight. That's a fight. Man, because I think Satan's biggest test to the church is whether or not they can be divided over stupid stuff. I mean, I watched my grandfather as, as a pastor from the time he was 32 and delivered from alcoholism and abuse and all of that kind of stuff. I watched him pastor churches, and I watched churches split over the colors of carpet. Granted, we don't have carpet, and this isn't even our building, so I think we're lucky. Over the color, I'm not, no, that's not, I'm not joking, color of carpet. Whether or not to have an organ. We fight over stupid stuff, and we think it's important. We think it's important. We have to insist on unity. We have to choose to be united before the choice even comes up. We have to say, look, we're, we're going to go after the same thing. And that's in this city, we want every man, woman, and child to have repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. We're not here to have the flashiest worship service. We're not here to have the best preacher. Good luck on that. Um, we're not here to have that. No, no, no. We're here to make sure that every man, woman, and child in this city has repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. That's it. And in the process, see disciples grow from infants to parents. To grow to where they think that everything's about them to where they understand that everything's not and they need to be replicating themselves in someone else. Seeing it actively happen. That's why we're here. Make disciples who love God, love one another, love the city. That's another way that we say it. We even stamp that on things. We need to be united in that before there's an opportunity to be divided. Standing firm, one spirit. Like, I think the best image of this, I remember as kids, we would, uh, we would go play in the woods. Like, I grew up in the sticks, and I, I loved growing up in the sticks, and it, it was a gift. Um, but we would go and play all day long and just sweat and sweat and sweat. And we'd come back home, and my parents didn't have red drink or Kool-Aid. Like, we weren't allowed to have that. We had sweet tea from the age of probably two. But we weren't allowed to come inside when we were that sweaty and nasty. So what we would all do is we would drink from the same hose. Now, in South Carolina, we call it a hose pipe which is a little bit of redundant speech, but either way, you knew exactly what the hose pipe was for. It was either to water your grass or your cultivated weeds, or it was for all the kids to drink out of when it got hot during the summer. The insisting on unity means this. We all drink from the same hose pipe. We all drink from the same hose pipe. If we're getting our information and our mission and our direction from the same place, we're not going to be divided. If every soldier is being told by the same general to go in a direction, soldiers aren't going to dissent. We drink from the same hosepipe. We need to make sure that our inspiration, our direction, our supplication, and our regeneration is all coming from the same source. Otherwise, we will be divided. We'll have agendas. 
We don't need agendas. We just need the gospel. That's it. We don't need agendas. We just need the gospel. And that leads to a mission, not agendas. Anyway, that's, that's a different day. Drink from the same hose. Be on the same mission. Don't let distractions take root. And when they take root, call them out for what they are. Like at any point, like if you are a part of Origins, like if you're a covenant member, number one, but also if you've been here for a little while and you haven't been through the membership process, but you consider this your family, if you see us being stratified as leadership and chasing different things, you have a voice to come and say, hey, you know what? I was just thinking. I'm not telling you what to do, but I noticed this, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. Point it out. Point it out. If we become too complex for our britches, tell us. We want to know. Like we're an elder-led church, but each of those elders would be more than happy to sit down and hear from you. Like if, if you notice something, tell us. We can't see everything at all times. We just, we just can't. Being united also requires multiple voices. Insist on unity. Drink from the same hose. And then the third thing, like what do we do with this, I think um, should, be, should be evident in what we've already said. But we have to live a Christocentric life. We have to keep Christ at the center. Infant believers struggle with this. And there's nothing wrong with being an infant believer because you know what we do for when people, when they go from death to life and they become an infant, we want to celebrate that. That's incredible. Now, what we don't celebrate is someone being an infant believer for 70 years. That's sad, okay? And, and that's sad and that shouldn't happen. We don't want that to happen. But if you're an infant believer, you struggle with this idea that you revolve around Jesus. God's going to grow you to a place of maturity where you can figure that out. But in the meantime, when, until you're growing and you get there, you need to go ahead and start adopting this mindset that everything that we do must revolve around Jesus. Everything that we say, everything that we put in place, from you know, all of these things, they need to revolve around Jesus. The same thing that we talked about last week, like the gospel must be primary Like, in order for the gospel to be primary, Jesus has to be at the center. He has to be at the center. Now, there will be times in which sin and selfishness and pride will move Jesus out of the center and put him in an orbit around ourselves. And when that happens, what we do is we confess, we repent, and we say, Jesus, you know what? I made it about me, not about you. Uh, I don't want to go back to that. Help me leave that behind. And we allow him to come back to center. We have to keep Christ as center. Because until Christ is center... We can't fill in the blanks of the difficult part of this text, which we'll, we'll tackle for just a couple minutes. The difficult part of this text, again, for by grace, you have been graced to believe, good with that, but to suffer for the sake of Christ. If I asked for a raise of hands for those people who are suffering right now, I think we'd be shocked at how many people are just in the trenches right now, today. Number one, not pop culture, but you're not alone. We'll cover that. But here, here's the question. Like, how is it that we can possibly keep Christ at the center when we're suffering? How is it that we can possibly keep Christ at the center when we're suffering? Here's a couple answers. Philippians 3.10, which we'll cover in just a few weeks. Paul talks about his qualifications, and, and I don't want to go, around, go over those yet because that's a fun text, and we, we look forward to sharing that. But in verse 10, it says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. One of the first ways that we can actually keep Christ at the center in our sufferings is understanding this, that our suffering further unites us with Jesus. That our suffering further unites us with Jesus. And you're like, what do you mean, Bob? Well, my name's not Bob, but this is what I mean. 
What I mean is this. To think for a moment that we get to suffer for the same reason that Jesus suffered. That should bring us joy. And I know that's hard. You're like, man, but it's suffering. Okay, this isn't to downplay what suffering is. Suffering is literally, like the word that Paul uses here is kind of a blanket idea. It's called pasco, which literally means like pressure or weight. He didn't say uh, dioko, which is persecution. Uh, he didn't say peresmos, which is trials or temptations. No, he just said suffering. So suffering could mean one of many things. One of many things. It could mean persecution. It could mean trials. It could mean cancer. It could mean divorce. It could mean loss of a loved one. It could mean any of those things. But if it's possibly for the sake of Christ, one of the first ways that we need to understand that it can be for his sake and not mine is that it actually helps unite us with him. To understand that we get to taste a little bit of what he endured as a result of leaving his holy, holy place where people sang of him all the time to come and stoop, kneel, and crawl for 30 plus some odd years to hang on a cross and suffocate on my behalf and your behalf. If we get to suffer for even the slightest reason in the slightest bit for the same cause that he did, it should actually, in our maturity, bring us a little bit of joy. For us to say... Jesus suffered for this sake, for the sake of God Almighty, the Father. Uh, we get to suffer for the same reason. It should unite us just a bit and bring us joy. To think that the Savior of all who believe and I are suffering for the same cause, maybe me just getting a taste of it, it should in some way bring us joy. And I know that's crazy. That, that makes so little sense. But to identify with Jesus through his sufferings, we can find joy there. But I will just make a statement that maturity is required. Maturity is required. An egocentric, an egocentric orbit won't, won't ever fill that. And this is not to make you feel guilty. It's to point to the fact that we need to grow and understand we need Christocentric. We need to revolve around him. If we're revolving around him, we can understand you suffered, I get to suffer because of you, and we both get to suffer like, that's, that's crazy. I shouldn't get to share in anything with Jesus. I shouldn't get to share his name. I shouldn't get to share in his victory. I shouldn't get to be a co-heir with him, but Scripture says that I am. But now, potentially, I get to share in his sufferings. That's crazy. And that's grace. You've been graced to suffer. The second way that, that our suffering can be for Christ, and we can understand we can keep Christ at the center of our sufferings, um, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9. I don't know if we got it up. Oh, you did. Incredible. Chapters. That, do, the, do the other one first. Can you do? No, you don't have it. That's okay. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9. It starts off with, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Our sufferings, believe it or not, because they're not about us, but they're there for the sake of Christ, they very may well equip us to pray for a brother or sister who's going through the exact same thing at the exact same time in a place that we're unaware of with a name that we don't know. Because this particular passage says, look, Satan's out there. He's seeking whom he may devour. 
And understand exactly what you're going through, feeling like you're being devoured right now, someone else, somewhere else, in another place that you're unaware of, but they know the name of Jesus and they're bound by it, they're going through the exact same thing. Who better to pray for that person, to intercede for that person, than someone who's going through the exact same thing at the exact same time? Who better? You may very well be enduring what you're enduring just so that you may intercede for person X or person Y in another place. Your suffering may be for them and not for you, but still for the sake of Christ. Believe it or not, our, our suffering, hold on, our suffering actually equips us if we view it correctly. Our suffering may be the very thing that equips us the best to love our brothers and sisters the most. My suffering, your suffering. Because whatever you're experiencing or have experienced, someone else is experiencing it right now. Whether it be divorce, whether it be addiction, whether it be a loss of loved one, whether it be a loss of job, whether it be financial ruin, whether it be any kind of loss imaginable, understand your suffering, believe it or not, as unique as you are, your suffering is not. It's not unique. Someone else has experienced it. Someone else is experiencing it right now, and someone else will experience it later. And so imagine if, if God, for the sake of Jesus, is gracing you to suffer for the person you meet next week or the person you meet in five years. And when they tell you about the tragedy they're experiencing and you've experienced the same tragedy and Jesus has brought you through, imagine the hope you can bring for the sake of Jesus if you just say, I have been there too. Can I tell you what I learned in the process? Can I tell you what I experienced after? Imagine if we view suffering for the sake of Christ as a means to equip us to love our brothers and sisters better, more fully, to intercede with a full understanding of what they're going through. That's for the sake of Christ. And again, this is not to downplay the legitimacy and the pain that's involved in suffering but it can be for the sake of Jesus and not for the sake and detriment of you or me. Maybe it's depression. I've battled it. I've been there. And one of the craziest things, like, not that I was delivered from it, because I still have days. I still have days, but the weeds that I lived in for a long time, they're, they're not here anymore. Praise God. But like a year after, like, I felt like I was normal again. A dude calls me out of the blue. I hadn't shared my story. I hadn't told him anything. This guy named Gary calls me. He's like, hey, man, I haven't seen you in a couple of years. Um, but for some reason, I wanted to call you. And I, I just needed to tell you that I am, I am battling depression right now. And I have no idea what to do. And I was like, who in the world betrayed my confidence and told this guy what I've been through? And for the next several months, I just got to walk with Gary and just say, man, I don't know how you knew, but I do, but I don't, and I think it's crazy. But can I just share with you what, what I've learned in the process? No sense to that. But it happens. Like what you endure for the sake of Christ could very well be not just for the sake of Christ, but for the sake of a brother and sister. 
maybe simultaneously, maybe down the road. But if you view it just about you and it's a punishment and detriment to yourself, we'll never use it. But God's not in the business of wasting anything. Like, God's like a Native American in a way. Like, with a cow and a Native American, this is a terrible metaphor, and I shouldn't even use it. But they didn't waste a single part of a cow. They'd use every bit. Americans, we waste all of it. But anyway, they didn't waste a single bit. God's the same way with us. Like, he's not going to waste a single part of my life. Good, bad, ugly, all the in-between. If it's an amount of suffering, he's not going to waste that. If we just allow him access... And then the third thing is this, like 1 Peter 5, 10, and 11, continuing on this text. It says, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace. I love this promise. Let me reread it again. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So understand, one way or the other, your suffering, believe it or not, it is temporary. Now, when you're in the middle of it, you're like, this is never going to end. This is never going to go away. This pain will always be here. And to a degree, yes, you're right. But restoration can come even in spite of pain. Being brought back to a place of functional and moving and missional can happen even when pain is there. And that's what restoration looks like. Being brought back to a place to understand that Jesus is at the center, no matter how bad your pain is, that's what restoration often looks like. And it says, after a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. The fact that God will restore you and probably has restored you if you've been through it, it needs to be shared. Like it needs to be shared. Like there's two of the greatest proofs of of God that we'll ever experience. Number one is a changed life. But number two is restoration from struggle. Those two things right there are our greatest apologetic we'll ever have. And our apologetic is, is reasoning with someone to explain to them the necessity of the gospel. Those two things will be our greatest apologetic ever. A changed life and restoration from struggle. Your story needs to be shared. If you've been through it, Whatever the valley may be, whatever the pain may be, whatever the depth of the destruction that you've experienced, if God has brought you through that, it needs to be shared. Whether one-on-one to someone else who's experienced it or or one-on-one with someone who hasn't. I mean, I think that's one of our most profound uh, pieces and actions of worship is just to say, man, let me tell you how worthy God is because of what he's done in my life. It needs to be shared. And that is a very Christocentric way of dealing with suffering. That's one way that it's evidence that our suffering is by grace, not as punishment, not as a test, not as a, a result of me not being okay. It can be for God's glory. Now, all of this to say, there will be times in which you just experience trials. James 1 tells us that, yes, tests and trials, they will happen. Sometimes God used those to refine us. But other times, man, suffering is just a result of we live in a broken world, marred and disgusted by sin, and sometimes we'll endure. But even those things that are not tests and trials, they can still be for the glory of Jesus. They can. But we can't be at the center of our lives for that to happen. We just can't. It won't work. It won't work. Last week... um, 
told you that there were like three dudes in my life, three men in my life that I've watched um, keep the gospel primary in difficult times. Um, one of those guys' names uh, was Steve Hafe. Steve was a, um, a mountain of a man, <laughs> like one of those guys that you shake his hand and regardless of the size of your hand, your hand disappears. That guy, um, and he was in a, a town called Barnwell, South Carolina. And for some reason, I, I, I used to travel and teach before I, I came on board on church staff. And uh, for some reason, I was in Barnwell a lot. I don't know, the gateway to the south. Got to know Steve, and he was like the Marine of this particular church. He was the first in, last out kind of guy. Um, so if there was a guest speaker or anything like that, like he would greet you even before the pastor. And, and he was just a guy that had been man, wrecked for Jesus and completely changed. Got to know him and his wife and their German shepherds really, really well. And, uh, and he was, like, he was just, I mean, he was just a man. Like, big dude, strong dude, very active. And, and there came a time where I hadn't been to Barnwell for a couple of years, got invited back, and uh, somebody told me that I needed to go and see Steve. I didn't really know why. But unbeknownst to me, Steve had uh, gotten cancer, and it was killing him. And this dude who, because in those younger days, I'd grab anybody. I'd wrestle anybody. I didn't care. And I'd beat him. Or at least I thought. Steve, I wouldn't grab. Like, he was that guy. He's like off limits. I'm not going to wrestle Steve. But when I walked in to see Steve, he was in his recliner. He no longer had any hair. Uh, he had lost probably about 100 pounds. And he was dying. Um, and I really thought when I found out what was going on with Steve that I would go in and be very pastoral. And I would go and share some deep, profound words of wisdom to encourage Steve. Like I thought I'd go in and remind him that healing is coming. One way or another, Steve, it's coming. Um, I don't think I said two words. But Steve said a lot. And Steve said a lot for the last few weeks of his death to everyone that came through that door. Because Steve understood that even in the fleeting moments of his life, the last few weeks didn't revolve around him. He understood that it was by grace that he had cancer. It was by grace that he was dying a slow and agonizing death. And he understood that it was by grace that every person walked into his living room to comfort him and left hearing the gospel. He understood. And I remember watching Steve that day. Uh, my brother was with me, and he's a, he's a worship leader. And, and Steve just wanted to sing. He wanted to worship. Steve wasn't even strong enough to hold up his hand, and so his wife did. Like sitting in the recliner, and he'd have to break for pauses because of the pain, and his wife would hold up his hand because he was too weak. That's how Steve wanted to spend the last few weeks of his life. Because he understood he wasn't in the middle. Life didn't revolve around him, even in those last few weeks when he could have been, why me? Why is this happening to me? God, how could you do this to me? Instead, he took those few weeks to ask the question, do you know Jesus too? Can I tell you about my Savior, my Jesus? Hundreds of people came in and out of that house those last few weeks. And with great assurance, I can tell you that every one of them heard about Jesus. I drove home that night and like... <laughs> about 20 minutes away, like I just, like I broke. 
like just believe it or not, I cry sometimes. And like I, but this time it was like one of those messy, sobbing, pull the car over kind of things. And, and it wasn't because I was sad. Like I wasn't sad because to be honest, like I knew Steve was about to be healed and I didn't want to see this man whom I loved suffer like that. Like I wanted restoration for him and I knew that he was about to get full, complete, total, utter, brand new, beautiful, unimaginable restoration. But I wept and I was broken because I had to confess that God, I couldn't die like that. I couldn't be sitting in a recliner praising you in that moment because my orbit was messed up. It wasn't right. And God uses Steve frequently to bring back to my mind what it looks like to revolve around him even when things are horrible and terrible and painful and bleak but by grace. makes no sense. But Jesus is bigger. He's better. He's more than. He's other than. He's all of those things. And I do think in, in one just kind of final challenge in an effort for us to understand what it looks like to be kingdom people, without sounding too cliche, we have to remember who's on the throne. And it's not me. And it's not you. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. It has to be Jesus. God, we love you. Thank you uh, even for the suffering that we don't understand. The stuff that doesn't seem to make sense in the moment, God, we know that you can use it. And maybe we don't. Maybe we're sitting here and we just think, God, there's no way that you can use this. There's no way you can do something with this. This is my fault. This is your fault, whatever those erroneous thoughts are, God, I pray that you would give clarity to the man or the woman or the multiple who are sitting here, and they're just, in, they're just in the midst of it. God, I pray you would comfort them through your people, comfort them through your word, comfort them through your spirit, but also, God, give them perspective. And it may not come right away, but at some point, give them perspective to, to see, perspective to see that Grace grants us salvation, but grace grants us the right to suffer for your sake. How does that work? God, I pray for a, a church of kingdom people, a church family that does understand that you are at the center and we are not moving us to remake us how you need us, um, to use us how you want to, and to bring the most glory possible to your name in this city. We love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.